your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'm your host alongside James Fox. It's just us today because you know why? I think you know why. The Chicago White Sox are wheeling and dealing. Shout out to James Fox because before the trade deadline, maybe a week prior, setting over-unders, five and a half, people were speculating way under, but how about this? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Chicago White Sox players were traded and they also made another move to acquire a player for cash. So we'll get into all of it. James, your reaction following this busy trade deadline that lasted about a week and a half? Yeah, I mean, I think they kind of jumped the market. I, I guess I'm not like totally surprised because what I took the over on five and a half, I think, and it's seven guys traded. I, I just like didn't know what to expect because you you definitely didn't know how far they were gonna go, but you kind of assumed like they should be listening on everybody. Like, you know, Luis Robert was going nowhere, but if you would have told me anybody else on the roster was traded, like I I could have seen a path to that. And I think, you know, we saw a couple of surprises, but it was mostly, I think, guys that we kind of expected to go. And I know we're going to talk about the players that, you know, the White Sox have added. And I we have some drafts follow-up still. But, I mean, you know, we were talking before we got on, I mean, the draft was July 9th, so even like going right before that, I mean, the White Sox have infused a lot of talent into their farm system, like over the last month to the point where like it's jumped in the rankings quite a bit. We're aware of all of the shortcomings like in the with the big league team and the front office and ownership and all of those things, like well-documented. I think we're both on record with like how we feel and what we would do, but, you know, I think it's okay to like take a step back and like, kind of look at this and realize that the organization's done it. I think they've done a really good job over the last month, just adding talent where they go from here and like what happens next. I think we're just going to have to wait and see, but I don't really know that they could have done much better trading the players that they actually traded. I tell you, I don't think the timing could be better thinking about the years leading up to the trade deadline in 2023, the front office, and especially the amateur scouting department has really done a good job in our, in my opinion, I don't mean to speak for you, building something that they can call their own in following their philosophy too, beginning in 2020. Five draft picks that season, you follow that up in 2021 with decisions to go in a direction that we haven't seen the Chicago White Sox do in the draft. Aggressive in Noah Schultz pick, aggressive in Colson Montgomery, signing prep arms, Fast forward to 2023's draft, the balance of pitching, the advanced arms that they're adding to the system that kind of aligns with the trajectory of these previous prospects drafted who are now developed in their second, third years. The decision to commit to the future leads us to believe that the White Sox in 2024 have reason to compete with the thought being there's help coming down the road. I think realistically, if you want to place expectations on this club, you have to understand that prospect trajectory isn't linear and you only buy into the development of these players after we see them on the field. 
And there's a lot of players on the field this year that have taken steps in positive lights. A lot of them, though, we have to be realistic, are still in the low-level minors, although this is the time of year where they take those next steps, and we're seeing players like Colson Montgomery and Brian Ramos. Jacob Burke, by the way, is awesome. Still an advanced day, just tearing it up. But these guys on the top 30 list are going to be more recognizable than ever before, and it's starting to get really exciting. And that really does tie into what we mentioned previously about the draft class. It's important to note that every pick has a slot amount and a lot of slot amount. And the White Sox, based on the signings, they signed all 20 players. We can go through the list. You know, a guy in the seventh round, George Wolkow, 17 years old, Downers Grove North High School, was paid third round pick money. So just an example of how the draft works. Now, James, I know you wanted to get to this because it does kind of tie into the fact that not only are you adding prospects from outside the organization, we're looking from within that's already been built. I think it's important also to mention uh, Mike Shirley really does care about the culture and the makeup of a player. So I wonder how much of an influence and how different the turnout will be in prospect development when your farm system essentially is loaded on your own players versus those that are being acquired from outside the organization. Now, a lot of these names are going to help big time. Edgar Caro is legit, uh, one of the top prospects in Major League Baseball. Colson Montgomery, at the end of the day, might become a top 15, top 10 prospect in Major League Baseball. So there's just a lot of excitement going around, at least the future Sox parts. But James, related to the draft, we're seeing the slot amounts, we're seeing all the signing bonuses. What were some of the takeaways when you finally got those numbers and laid it out one through 20? Yeah, so I think, you know, I we liked this draft class. I thought it was interesting, but like the thing that came in, you know, obviously we talked about George Wolkow and we knew it was going to be over slot. The, the thing that was very surprising to me, I guess, was Jacob Gonzalez in the first round signed for $3.9 million, which, I mean, that's, you know, the White Sox saved like around 600 k which is basically where the rest of their bonuses came from. So one of the things I like to do, stack the draft class, you know, just according to money, because it kind of tells you, you know, just ballpark where like they think some of these players should have gone, like regardless of, you know, what round they actually go in. So the biggest overslot signing on day three, one that I wasn't necessarily expecting to be this much money, Matthias Lacombe, you know, he's the righty out of France. You know, that was the John Kazanis guy. We've talked about him on previous episodes. Signed for $450,000 on day three. So that means 300000 of that counts against the White Sox bonus pool. That's basically a fifth-round value in line with pick number 140. So Jacob Gonzalez signed for $3.9 million. Pick 15, basically the value of pick 19. Grant Taylor signed for slot, so pick 51 right in range. And then next, like according to money, was George Wolkow. Okay, George Wolkow, seventh round pick. It's number 73 overall pick money at $1 million. So think about that. So that's, you know, it's almost like I tweeted this. It's almost like if you watch the NFL or NBA draft, it's like the White Sox traded down, essentially. Like you kind of traded down for Jacob Gonzalez, got extra picks, and then got these extra guys like in the top five rounds. Seth Keener signed for 800 k which is basically in line with where he was picked. Calvin Harris, $600,000, you know, that's, that's right in line, fourth round money. And then Christian Opor is 550K in round five. That's basically fourth round money as well. So, you know, this is kind of what they did. And then we, you know, we talked to Jim Callis and Peter Flaherty just about some of these like other interesting guys, like a little bit later on. But I think like the biggest thing here for me, what 9.072 million. So like, you know, just under... 
what, 9.1? That was the White Sox bonus pool. That's what they were able to spend. They spent 9517800 which is pretty pretty close to the full 5% overage that you're allowed to spend. Um, so it's basically an extra $445,000. Because they did that, you pay a 75% overage on that, which is like another 330K. Um, and then they spent 1.4 million on day three that doesn't count against their pool. So they manipulated their pool to the point where you're allowed to spend right around nine. They were able to spend $11.3 million on the draft, signed all 20 players. I know that they're not all going to be good. We don't know if any of them are going to be good. That's like not the important part right now. I like looking at the process and the process was good and the strategy was sound and, you know, you want to add as many good players as you can, like in those 20 spots. And I think they did a pretty good job of doing that. I think, you know, the top four guys by money, Jacob Gonzalez, Grant Taylor, George Wolkow, Seth Keener, probably go right on the top 30. I think there was an opportunity for more, but after this trade deadline splurge, um, it's probably just those four guys for now, but there were, there were other interesting picks too that, you know, we'll talk about over the coming months, basically. So when we talk about crediting Mike Shirley in the scouting department, I mean, that's a perfect example of strategy and understanding why the White Sox are doing what they're doing and targeting the players that they're targeting. Now, look, that's a sound strategy. It's about executing the development part now and understanding what you have in the player. And they got to play professional baseball at an elite level. And we haven't seen the White Sox do as good a job as we'd like to see them do in that regard. But that doesn't take away from the fact that right now there are some internal options in the top 30 in the organizational top 30 that we're really excited about specifically some of the arms and when it comes to now evaluating that area of the organization prior to the deadline we're thinking about grant taylor is going to get his professional debut next season coming off a full season miss because of tommy john surgery seth keener out of wake forest is a late blooming starting pitcher who is going to need time to develop. Talk about the internal options already. Christian Mann is 20 years old. Ben Badler talked to us on a previous episode. He kind of expects him to take another year or two to get ready, which totally understandable, still participating in double A at this point. And you think down the line as well, Jonathan Cannon has really excelled. Older, advanced arm, high floor, pretty safe to assume that he'll debut in the big leagues as a starter, but you don't know the timelines yet. Then you fast forward to today. Knowing what the White Sox have now, following their seven deals plus the acquisition of Luis Patino from the Tampa Bay Rays, and they're getting more close to the big league ready prospects in their pitching staff. And I, I can't get over the fact that the White Sox quietly, while they're trying to complete, they were rebuilding their farm system. And the fact that they were able to time it up, I mean, it was a matter of circumstance, but the timing couldn't have been better because the White Sox were desperately, desperately looking for catching depth and arms. And they got a lot of it on this trade deadline, part of the reason why we're so excited. And let's break it down. James, let's start with the Los Angeles Angels acquisition of Giolito and Raylo. We're already seeing Raylo pump 101 in the closers role for Los Angeles. Giolito got a start. He's actually starting, if you're listening today, Wednesday, he's starting tonight. In return, they got Edgar Carroll, catcher. That was the prize, as well as left-handed pitcher Kai Bush. I'm excited about Kai Bush. I, I mentioned on Twitter, it was a knee-jerk reaction that Kai Bush, I think it's safe to project Kai Bush, as well as the other starting pitcher that we'll talk about in a little bit, um, can pitch in the big leagues late next season. Still not backing off that statement. We'll see how development goes. It's just a matter of he's an older prospect. Carroll is 20 years old at catcher. 
they have more time to allow these players to develop than previously because of the status of the farm system and the depth that they were able to add. So I'll just end on that. Yeah. So I mean, getting Caro. So I just think it was like the angels are interesting, right? Like I really feel like they probably had a lot of interest in Giolito and Lopez, like interest from the Dodgers, interest from other teams. But I think that like, this is where the white Sox I think did a pretty good job. Like you, you found the desperate team, right? Like the angels are trying to win as soon as they can because of Otani. And you get a guy like Caro who, Look, I think some people are maybe a little bit down on just because of like the way the Angels have pushed him, right? Like he really broke out last year when he was in A ball. Um, he hit 313, 435, 530 when he was 19, and they jumped him all the way to double A this year just because like that's kind of what the Angels have been doing. I think I think he definitely stays at catcher. The question is like he had 17 home runs last year in the California League, but it's a very hitter heavy league right so I don't know that he has quite that much power but he is a switch hitter that can hit that gets on base that's like probably a catcher so and he's 20 and he's in double a and they're going to keep him in double a I mean he it's a really good arm behind the plate so I mean this is just you know he's definitely like a top 100 prospect that you got for eight or nine Lucas Giolito starts and Ronaldo Lopez a guy who has really good stuff but you know I don't think the White Sox were going to bring back I will say it is another, you know, it's another Cuban. Um, I don't know how long the White Sox have, have followed Caro, obviously, but, you know, a lot of Cuban players. So, and he's at, you know, he's at double A Birmingham right now, and he's one of the better prospects in the White Sox system. So they, you know, I think they, they kind of started things off with a bang. It was pretty interesting. Kai Bush is a guy who the White Sox were interested in, you know, they were linked to a little bit throughout the, the 2021 draft cycle. But he went he went forty fifth overall, so that was the year the White Sox took Colson Montgomery West Calf. So who knows? Like maybe there's like an alternate path where they end up with a Kai Bush somehow. But he was six six lefty out of St. Mary's. I think you know the stuff has kind of backed up a little bit. He was in the Futures game last year. Um, he he got hit pretty hard in his debut with the White Sox. But I mean, yeah, it's like a it's a back end left handed starter. But I mean, like as a second piece in a deal for what they gave up. I think pretty good return. And you just, you know, you add Kai Bush to the, the pile of high minors pitching that the White Sox have now kind of accumulated. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty interesting return. I think, I think Caro is like, obviously like the main piece though. For sure. And with Kai Bush turning 24 years old, it's fair to dream. And I talked about this with Elijah Evans on the future Sox roundup. Be sure to subscribe to the future Sox podcast. You'll get two episodes a week. And uh, we talked about it with Elijah as well, about just when you're adding arms who are 23, 24, 25, you figure the timelines are pretty close and the White Sox added plenty there. And I agree with you. I'm excited to see Carroll develop. The White Sox did acquire another catcher in a one-for-one deal. Let's skip down to Houston. Kendall Graveman goes to the Astros in exchange for Corey Lee. Corey Lee has had major league experience behind the plate before. He struggled overall, I think, it makes a lot of sense considering Yasmani Grandal's on his way out and you know beyond what they already have in the big league, Sebi Zavala and Carlos Perez. You know, beyond that, you're thinking about development and Calvin Harris and Adam Hackenberg. And now we're thinking about uh, Evan Skaug, who is no longer with the organization. So, I mean, that's, I think, a savvy play by the White Sox because you, it's so important to solidify the catchers. 
Well, and I think Corey Lee, like, you know, obviously, like, I think Caro's the main one, but Corey Lee we're going to see sooner. Right. He was kind of a surprise as the Astros' first rounder back in 2019. He was teammates at Cal with Andrew Vaughn. I think, you know, I think it's been said and written that Houston really loved his, like, exit velo data and, like, some of the numbers and stuff coming out of there. Um, It was a surprise pick. It was bat first, definitely, at the time. But I mean, it's you know, it's it's been massive raw power in the past, arm strength. But I mean, there's been, I guess, some issues where he he tried to like kind of change and shortened his stride a little bit to like, but but then it kind of stopped some of the power. So I mean, like to me, like I just rather have the the huge raw power with like a low batting average, and then like as long as he can catch, that's fine with me because we've seen like catcher defenses or not catcher defense, catcher offense has just been brutal. So like if you can hit it all and catch, like you could be a regular like at this point. So, you know, he hasn't played a ton of games. MLB Pipeline in their write-up um, has kind of said he hasn't played more than 73 games like behind the plate as a professional. He's quick. He's more athletic than most backstops, and he's got plus-plus arm strength. There's been mixed reviews on the blocking skills, but I know the White Sox think he can catch for sure, and I think we're going to see him soon. I don't know... You know, I, I don't know what that means for Yasmani Grandal or, you know, obviously Sebi Zavala is a, you know, I think a backup and um, Perez profiles is kind of a backup. So, like, I, I would think we're going to see quite a bit of Corey Lee, like, as the season winds down here. And if he's their primary catcher, like, in 2024, it wouldn't surprise me at this point either. He just turned 25 in July. So, you know, this is a young catcher that, should get a shot to prove that he should be the starting catcher for the White Sox for a while. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. That's indeed.com slash blue wire sports and support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And you still see that Carlos Perez has options. And I mean, that makes life so much easier for the Chicago White Sox. If they do decide to maybe sign a veteran catcher, placeholder for a little bit, you have to have stability at the position. And they're trying to develop some in the minor leagues. This this surely isn't the finished product at the big league level. So uh, there's the breakdown of a couple of catchers that are being added to the system. Let's move on up now to the Los Angeles Dodgers return. Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly in exchange for Nick Nestrini, Jordan Leisure, and Trace Thompson. How about it? Welcome back. Nestrini is the prize here, right-handed pitcher. From what I read, top 100 guy. Uh, Jordan Leisure is going to be a reliever, right-handed reliever. Uh, But Nestrini... Really excited about the pick, hard-throwing, really filthy slider. Needs help a little bit with command, some development to be had. But uh, reaction, James, Joe Kelly, and Lance Lynn, a couple of expiring contracts, and you get a top 100 pitching prospect. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a guy that led the system in strikeouts. I think with, he had like 170 before the trade, 13 Ks per nine. He limited opponents to a 180 batting average in double A, which is pretty good. I mean, yeah, command's always been an issue. Reaches the high 90s with outstanding carry. I know the White Sox really like like the pitch characteristics and the the spin rates and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, he he went into the Dodgers pitching factory after being a fourth-round pick out of UCLA. You know, the stuff that he has, like, gives him the upside to be, like, a number two starter. And it'll kind of depend on if he throws enough strikes. And, you know, the White Sox, this is something that they used to be really good at, is getting guys like this to repeat their delivery and, you know, turn into stuff. And that was obviously, like, in the Don Cooper days. And I think there's certain guys who – Ethan Katz has been able to reach. And, you know, we talk about like the core velocity belt that, that he brings out and uses. And apparently like that's um, Tuki Toussaint is attributing some of his success to that. And Giolito used it. But, you know, there's obviously been some failures too. You know, pitchers have come to the White Sox and lost velocity. And I think they're, you know, like the Everett Tiford left as the pitching coordinator. So I do think like for future episodes, like, I think it's a great time for them to go outside the organization and, and change their pitching infrastructure a little bit just with some of these guys that they've added. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is a guy with the ceiling of a number two starter that should be able to pitch at the back of a bullpen. Like, you know, if he doesn't get the, the walk rate in order essentially, but yeah, I mean, this is like one reason why you trade with a team like the Dodgers. And I think people worry, right? Because they think like, Oh, when you trade with the Dodgers, you're definitely going to lose a trade. But the thing is like, they just, they have so many guys that, guys are expendable and you know Dodgers fans like weren't really happy about this one because they, they kind of you know they kind of like Nestrini because he does things that you know we don't see that often just because it's like the the power stuff right but he's expendable for them for sure because they have like the best double a rotation like maybe that anybody's ever seen so yeah I think it was good I think getting this guy for for what they traded I think was good and the rest of the package is interesting too yeah, Jordan Leisure now uh, turning 25 in August, uh, only a reliever across his career. And just briefly, I want to mention both Kai Bush and Nick Nestrini will begin next season as 24-year-old pitchers, and it will be their fourth professional season and their third full offseason being in a, a part of a professional organization. So I don't think, you know, that's that's not for nothing. I think it's very important. Uh, to recognize the experience and how close these players are. Now you want to see success, of course, but I think I, I think it's fair to entertain the idea that they're close. Now, back to Jordan Leisure, what's interesting, obviously the pathway to the big leagues is a little bit different as a relief pitcher, and the White Sox suddenly in the bullpen have plenty of spots for, and, and opportunities for a guy like Leisure to make his name. And Declan Cronin was just promoted, wonderful story. Uh, a White Sox homegrown prospect pitching at the big league level. I think this is something that James, uh, we were entertaining the idea that if the White Sox are going to be competitive, it's not so far fetched because the bullpen still is retaining some of these pieces that we're seeing now that have had a lot of success on top of the fact that this division is pretty poor. And if they do decide to spend a little bit in the off season, this team isn't undergoing a complete rebuild. There are still pieces that allow them to be competitive. Now, how competitive? Not saying that they're good enough to win the division, even though this, you know, the AL Central to this point is very lackluster. It's just if we're being realistic about the White Sox, they can play okay enough baseball to be entertaining by the deadline and then decide to sell off again. 
Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why they they didn't necessarily trade everything today. Um, I think they, you know, I think look, I think it went down the, to the wire for Cease. I don't, I don't think they were opposed to trading Dylan Cease. I just think that they were only going to do it at their price, and I think it was a pretty lofty price as it should have been for three playoff runs, right? I think similar for Aaron Bummer. I think fans see the six ERA and. You know, they don't see the 240 FIP and, you know, a lot lot of the bad luck. I mean, if Aaron Bummer was on a on a good team, I think he'd be a lot more valuable than he's been on the White Sox, obviously. So, yeah, they'll go into next year with, you know, they're going to have to spend money, obviously. I think it's a topic for future shows. But, I mean, yeah, they, they do still have pieces and more guys that they, they could trade if they have to pivot further. But I think the interesting thing about Leisure, too, the, the Sox sent – Jordan Leisure to AAA, which means I think we could see him at some point. I mean, it's 14 and a half strikeouts per nine at AA with the Dodgers and ERA of like 309. He throws really, really hard. I think, you know, it's a pure reliever. So in the sense of, you know, like when we go to make our top 30 prospect list, like I don't know that he's definitely on it, but that doesn't mean that he's not a useful piece that the White Sox could use soon. I, I could see him, you know, at the back of the White Sox bullpen, with Gregory Santos. I mean, th- this is, you know, it's an interesting guy. Fastballs and sits in the high nineties out of a low release, you know, with, with plenty of extension. Um, so, you know, I just think it's maybe some of the rest of the pitches. There's an upper 80 slider that, you know, has, has flash plus, but it's not consistent. So, you know, we'll see what the white Sox plans are for leisure, but we could see him uh, pretty quickly in a bullpen role. I think. Now, that was just prior to the trade deadline. That was all the acquisitions Chicago White Sox made prior to August 1st. Now, let's fast forward to August 1st. Boy, oh boy, was there action. And you talked about Dylan Cease going down to the wire. I truly believe it as well. I think the White Sox were listening and holding a very, very high price tag for the runner-up Cy Young candidate last year who still has two years left on his contract. And I think that's essentially what it was. I think the White Sox recognized that, yes, there is still value in maintaining Dylan Cease, but also if they were going to move him, you better give me everything. And teams just weren't willing to budge. And I credit the White Sox for staying put. Now, those who wanted to see Dylan Cease get moved, I understand completely. This is a direction of the organization that we all understand is happening. They're trying to prepare for the next couple of seasons and value internal development. But it's not easy to move a player like Cease's caliber and get a buyer that suits his value. So I think that's, we just leave it at that. And it leads us to a move that struck me as rather surprising. And Jake Berger going to Miami for left-handed pitcher Jake Eater. This is another top pitching prospect in minor league baseball. Pretty advanced already. I think the shock though is James Berger, a fan favorite unbelievable story, something that we covered across our time at Future Sox overcoming two Achilles injuries and his ability to overcome doubt and the stress that was, um, the the questions that kind of turned up for Jake Berger, whether or not he could do baseball ever at all again. And slowly but surely, the timeline kept getting better. Showed flashes of why the White Sox were so enamored with the player on Missouri State. The bat jumps. However, when it comes to Jake Berger's status at the big league level with this team, I have a very hard time projecting him as a regular. And the fact that a 26-man roster is just that, 
his roster spot means a lot. And when you have a lot of like-minded players, those who kind of do similarly to what Jake Berger does, and unfortunately Berger doesn't have the defensive prowess that others kind of showcase on a regular basis, I was pleasantly surprised to see the return that they were able to get in Jake Eater for a player like Jake Berger. I know that he's cost-controlled and his bat is something that you fall in love with. The personality from all that I can tell is is second to none. But when you're getting Jake Eater in return, you can't say no. This was an interesting one. It was a little bit of a shock, I think, just for people. Look, I don't think it's that surprising, like in hindsight, right? Just because we kind of always talk about how the White Sox have so many of the same type of player, right? They have all these first base DH types that are non-versatile. And I've kind of said, I don't think you could have Jake Berger and Aloy Jimenez on the same team. And, you know, they could have easily traded Aloy Jimenez today and kept Jake Berger to DH. But I think, you know, Jimenez has some outfield utility where you really just don't necessarily want Berger playing defensively anywhere like that often. He was, he's been okay at third, but, you know, obviously a whole nother discussion is Yohan Moncada and how disappointing that's been. But I mean, like, you know, he, he's at third and like, ultimately you need more versatile players and you need to get more left-handed at some point. So it's not terribly shocking. He, he's definitely a fan favorite. We covered Jake pretty extensively. You know, I remember being at the alternate site in 2020 and seeing him and, you know, maybe even like texting you or whoever and being like, man, Jake Berger's going to play in the big leagues. And, you know, he was healthy after two Achilles tears finally, and he was looking good and they kind of like rushed him up and he, he kind of performed. I mean, he's got 35 big league homers, you know, he's got 25 this year. It's a 115 WRC plus like he's a lot of people's favorite player. I feel like, right. But you know, he struck out over 30% of the time in the big leagues. He doesn't walk often. It's, you know, we don't talk about batting average a ton cause it's not super important, but he's hitting 214 with a 279 OBP. Now he's slugging 527 and he's got 25 homers. So that's the utility. He's a corner guy that can hit you 30 to 35 homers, I think. But overall, like from a value standpoint, I mean, he's worth 1.4 Fangraphs war, like on the season. I just, you know, I, I just think as a 27 year old, you have the chance to get a pitcher that the White Sox really like, that a lot of people really like, you know, with six years of control. I think it makes sense like after doing it, but I do think it's like a gut punch a little bit for a fan base that really, really liked Berger. I think Rick Hahn said that they, they made a baseball trade and, and, you know, I understand that. I, I like the player that they got in return. I think he's flirted with being in the top 100, but you know, it's kind of been, Topsy turvy a little bit for for Jake Eater. Six foot four, two hundred fifteen pounder. He was a fourth rounder in twenty twenty out of Vanderbilt in the shortened draft. But I mean, Pipeline has given him sixty grade fastball, sixty grade slider. I mean, he'd flash first round stuff when he was at Vanderbilt, but he like pitched out of their bullpen some, you know, just because as we've seen, like following these drafts, like some of these loaded programs, they just like don't have time for like, or don't have space for all these guys to start all the time. He dominated double A in 2021 in his pro debut, but then he did have Tommy John. And then he dealt with a left foot fracture that kept him off the mound until this past June. And his stuff isn't all the way back to what it was. So, you know, I think the White Sox are betting a little bit that they can get his stuff back to what it was, you know, prior to, to some of the injuries, but Plus fastball, plus slider, prior to getting hurt, 
it's a fastball that's like gotten up to 98. There's a lot of horizontal action. I think something like Shirley always talks about. I think there's, there's a ton of spin like on the slider. So I just, I think Jake Eater is really interesting to the point where this is like, could be a number, you know, another number two or number three starter. It's another guy with inconsistent control and command, but I mean, look, that that's kind of what you're getting, right? Like if these guys had consistent control and command, they'd all be number one starters and you wouldn't be able to trade for any of them. So I just, I think it's like another lefty that you slide into the top of your system. He's definitely like a top five prospect in the White Sox system right now. We'll see where, where they send him out and what it looks like. But I mean, again, like I, I agree with you, what you said about Kai Bush. I think some of these other guys have more upside than Kai Bush does, but like if you're pitching at double A already, like you're close to the majors because it, you know, you're, you're on the doorstep, especially when, you know, the White Sox triple A affiliate is in Charlotte and you don't want to subject these guys to that for extended periods of time. Any number of these guys could pitch well in the White Sox system and be seen very early in 2024. And to James point about pitching in Charlotte, the ball just jumps out of that ballpark and kind of inflates numbers to a certain degree. So that's all he means there. And, you know, yeah, you're, you're facing some talent that was previously in the big leagues and, and top prospects as well, but it's more so the ballpark factor. And when we're talking about a couple of left-handed pitchers in Kai Bush and now Jake Eater, Jake Eater will be 25 next season. Kai Bush, like we talked about, 24. Nick Nostrini, 24. So, yeah, I mean, you combine the fact that the White Sox have some pitching internal options that they've drafted and developed over the last handful of years, plus what they're infusing now via trade, it's fair and it's fun to get excited about the future because there's a direction. We believe it, we see it, and you just got to execute the whole development part. And now, you know, it's baseball. Players can flame out, and we've seen it happen. But if the White Sox are committed to going this route and want to stay conservative in free agency, like we're used to seeing them across, you know, the entire history that the Jerry Reinsdorf won the organization, if you're going to be tight with payroll, you better commit to this farm system. And that's what the White Sox have been doing over the last four seasons. So that's really exciting. And it leads us to the next move. Two more moves that we're going to talk about. Uh, first one, Keenan Middleton, a small one for Juan Corella, the New York Yankees. He was their 29th prospect uh, in their top 30. According to Major League Baseball Pipeline, Keenan Middleton was a nice little project that had a relationship with uh, Ethan Katz in the past, and he was their best reliever for large stretches of the year. And the White Sox were able to flip him. There's another guy who you know was ticketed to leave the organization after this season, and they got a young arm in return. Anything that you uh, want to share about Juan Carrera? Yeah, so I mean, it won't be terribly surprising, but he's Rule Five eligible in December, which is you know one reason why the Yankees and other organizations look to trade these players. I know a lot of the moves the Cubs made, they traded guys that need rule five protection. So we'll see if the White Sox like him enough to, to do that. I mean, as a 21 year old that was signed out of the Dominican, um, he throws two fastballs, a two seamer and a four seamer. He does have 109 strikeouts in 83 and a third innings in high A this year. So that's like almost 12 Ks per nine. Numbers look pretty good. 367 ERA, 373 FIP. So yeah, I mean, definite, definite starter. I mean, my guess is he goes to Winston-Salem with the White Sox. I don't know if this is a guy that like Marco Patti has liked in the past or what, or if their pro scouts just liked him. But I mean, yeah, like this is, um, this, this is a pretty good like lottery ticket for Kenyon Middleton, who's a guy who was a non-roster invite, like you mentioned. And, has pitched well and kind of hasn't pitched that well of late, but has pitched well overall. You you take a shot on a guy that has the upside of 
like a number four starter or a slider happy reliever as MLB pipeline kind of noted. He was number 29 in the Yankees system. Um, I, I'm not, I don't think he'll be ranked in the new white Sox system. Like when it's all said and done, but yeah, I mean, just, you know, another, another guy to throw on the pile and I'm always fine with trading Keenan Middleton's who are slated to be free agents for free shots at guys like this. So, you know, we'll see uh, when when he gets started in the White Sox system and where he goes, and we'll uh, just like keep you posted on how that's looking. And the final move, I've been waiting to talk about this one because I'm I'm excited. I mean, why why not? The White Sox sent cash over to Tampa Bay for Louis Patino, who was formerly a top 100 prospect, was sent to Tampa in the Blake Snell move, and look, this is an electric arm who has pitch in the big leagues he is uh, he still has minor league options upside arm you're getting him for nothing you're willing to spend the cash there's still a lot of upside in the arm and when you're not giving up much I think this is a lot of fun to be able to follow and get hyped about because you know there's a reason for the hype when at the time if you're a top 100 prospect you know, there's something good that you're doing. So there's an electric arm that the White Sox are adding to the system that has experience starting as well. So again, positivity on the Future Sox podcast. Yeah, Patino was a, you know, he was a top 100 prospect for a while. And he was always, you know, kind of talked about coming up through the Padres system. And then, like you said, he was finally traded for Blake Snell. Um, but yeah, he's he's really struggled. I think he's been hurt a few times. Yep. I mean, the, he's only 23 still. And... You know, this year it looks like what I believe he's pitched. He only he pitched four innings um, in the big leagues. I think this year, right? And then and then he has like some minor league stats too, obviously. So, yeah, I just I think it's you know at this point it might be a reliever. We'll see what the White Sox do. I mean, my guess is he's he's going to Charlotte um, to pitch in that environment that we basically like kind of just like talked about how tough it is but yeah i mean for just money okay it's worth a shot i mean we'll see what you know the white Sox pitching people are are able to do with them i think the rays made a couple of similar trades like this it was like kind of weird i don't know if they you know with their draft class like maybe they have a bunch of guys that they want to move to triple a or something along those lines but yeah i mean this is a a free shot on a former top prospect um who who has definitely lost his way um and, you know, we'll see if our guy uh, Jeff Cohen can can yeah. see him in Charlotte and see if the White Sox – I guess the, the thing that I find the most inter- – or that I'll think is the most interesting is whether they let him start or whether they just try to turn him into a reliever at this point. I'm just really excited about the depth of the pitching staff because that was – yeah on top of the catching, they added catching James, but to add the amount of arms that they did to the system was much needed, and it was one of those instances where you don't have to put so much stress – in the off season, because you're going to have to, you're going to have to acquire arms, but not as much now considering the depth that they added. Yeah. They've added a lot of like close to the majors starting pitching depth. And I think like, look, the white Sox are insistent on the fact that they think that they can contend next year. You know, I think with what they currently have like in the system, like I think it's going to be tough on the, in the pitching department unless they go and add a bunch. Right. So I, I do think part of their plan will be to sign some free agent pitching and then hope that a Jake eater and a Nick Nostrini and some of these other guys can, can make the leap and maybe you can find a starter or two that way. Um, but yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I think the, the biggest takeaway for me 
with this whole thing is that I, I think the White Sox did a pretty good job here. And we know their shortcomings. They're well-documented. We talked about it at the beginning of the show. Like, you know, I, I hear the questions and criticism all the time about Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and just, you know, like, oh, the front office and the development team will just mess all these guys up anyway. But, you know, I just like feel like being a little bit more hopeful than that. Like it's a system that went from 27th in baseball to now, I think firmly into the top 15. I think you didn't trade anything super significant off your big league team, right? While I think a lot of people would have been okay with it, like Tim Anderson is still on the White Sox. Like Aloy Jimenez is still on the White Sox. They did not trade Dylan Cease. You know, you have Aaron Bummer and Liam Hendricks. And yeah, like I know the Sox have a bottom five record. Like they're not very good. But you just vaulted your farm system up into the top 15. And I can argue that like you didn't really lose anything that you wouldn't have lost for free anyway. So, you know, I, I think you've you've added probably 10 players to their top 30 prospect list, like between the draft and and the you know the trade period. And you know, we'll get into that when we release our top 30 and on future shows and whatnot. But I just think health-wise, the organization is in a much, much better spot than they were, say, like even if we go back to like July 1st pre-draft. They've added a lot of talent to this system. And, you know, we'll we'll see where the big league team finishes and get into where they pick in next year's draft and all that. That that's for the future. But I mean, I think it's easy it's easy to be jaded, and I understand it because I think we're both fans of this team. So I get it. But maybe try to be a little bit hopeful just like based on what they were able to do at this deadline, like in a vacuum. I think they did a pretty good job. One last time, I will mention, Kai Bush, Nick Nestrini, they are going to be 24 years old, Jake Eater, 25, Louis Patino, 24, and then you start to think about other pitchers in the organization that are already a part of this thing, Sean Burke had a tough year, but hopefully this experience will get him to the next level because the White Sox anticipate Sean Burke to be a part of this thing despite the down year. Christian Mana, Peyton Paulette, Jonathan Cannon, Matt Thompson's been lauded. The fact that he's pitching in double A this season, he's knocking on the door of triple A. It's somebody that the White Sox think highly of as well. Tanner McDougal is developing as well. Jared Kelly has transformed from somebody who is nothing but inconsistent to somebody putting together multiple consistent outings. Tyler Schweitzer, left-handed pitcher in your system. There's still development to be had, but just going through the names There's a lot of names versus where we were a couple of weeks ago and even prior to the draft. So kudos to the White Sox. I mean, they can they can surely stock a farm system via trade. They've done it twice now. Hopefully that's the last time they're going to have to do it for a while. And I know a while is relative, but man, felt like that first rebuild ended pretty quickly. Mention the top 30. We're going to be working on it throughout the month and we're going to continue to be releasing these episodes weekly. Future Sox podcast release every Tuesday, and the Future Sox roundup with Elijah Evans releases on the weekend. So please come back for those, and as well as this one, go back and listen to Peter Flaherty, the interview that we had with him, as well as all the other guests that we had prior to the draft, post-draft, pre-deadline, and moving forward, we're going to continue providing content for you, the Future Sox listener. We really appreciate your support. Thank you very much. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Again, we release episodes every Tuesday. We'll talk to you all next week.